0: There's no Ouzo Talk without a bottle of Ouzo, which is why we love the Greek Provador. Get a real taste of the very best produce that Greece has to offer, from olive oils and delicious artisan sweets to unique spirits, earthy herbs and memorable wines. Visit thegreekprovador.com.au to see their amazing range. The Greek Provador, proud sponsors of the Ouzo Talk podcast. Craving something sweet? Head to Bay Vista Dessert Bar at Brighton La Sands. Treat yourself to mouth-watering desserts, cakes, sweet and savoury crepes, waffles, ice creams and much, much more. All overlooking Sydney's iconic Brighton Beach. And now, also at Parramatta. Visit bayvista.com.au or drop on in for something sweet. Bay Vista Dessert Bar. Proud sponsors of this episode of Uzzot. Sound is... Nick, I'm so excited to be talking to our guest today who is an absolute legend in the field of history, isn't
1: he? Tom, I'm still pinching myself, mate. I don't know how this amazing gentleman got a hold of us and uh, we actually got him live, ready to go.
0: Well, we got a hold of him, to be fair. And, you know, oddly enough, it didn't take too much work to actually get him, which was really surprising given the stature of of, of this gentleman. We're so proud to be able to say that we managed to get him. So, look, we'll cut the chit-chat because because we we want to spend as much time with him as possible because there's so much we can learn. Uh, You ready for this intro? I am, mate. Let's go. Fire away. Okay, so our guest has been featured in and has worked on countless documentaries on ancient Greece, including a personal favourite of mine, the PBS series The Greeks, Crucible of Civilization," narrated by Liam Neeson, no less. He's the A.G. LeVendis Senior Research Fellow of Clare College, Cambridge, and is also the Emeritus A.G. LeVendis Professor of Greek Culture in the Faculty of Classics. It goes without saying that he holds degrees, PhDs, and honorary PhDs, so you won't be surprised to know that he's written, co-written, edited, and co-edited over 25 books in the broad field of ancient Greek history, including on the Spartans, Thermopylae, Democracy, Alexander the Great, and much more. He's an honorary citizen of modern Sparta, and he holds the gold cross of the Order of Honor awarded by the President of the Hellenic Republic. One thing's certain when it comes to this man, in 50, 100, 500, or even 2,500 years from now... The world will still be learning about the ancient Greeks through reading sources like Herodotus, Thucydides, and Plutarch, but they'll also be reading Paul Cartledge. For that reason and many more, we're very proud to be welcoming our Greek brother from another motherland, <laughs> Professor Paul Cartledge. Welcome to you, sir. Uh,
2: Tom and Welcome, Nick, uh, who were you talking about, by the way? Ah, yes, it was uh, myself. <laughs> <laughs> Just one slip <laughs> history moves on. I am now commander, which is in Greek, Taxiarchis, of the Order of Honor. So I've been promoted above. Gold Cross, which I was awarded about 20 years ago, and only last year. And so you go to the uh, residence of the Greek ambassador, which is where, for example, Seferis was ambassador. And I'm going this evening Mm. to London. I'm going to the opening of an exhibition on Seferis held at the residence where I was given my commandership from last year. Fantastic! And what does the commandership come with? Do you get a hat? Is there a
0: sword involved? Is there something to <laughs> no, that <laughs> no, you, you, puts you above everyone? You, <laughs> you
2: <laughs> may think that's a joke. but Comes that, with an island? Uh, well, if only you know, Scorpios, perhaps <laughs> Scorpion. No, but um, there, there, is a, there is an order of um, award that the Greek government has. It's called the Order of the Phoenix. I don't know if you come across that. Phoenix, of course, is the bird that rises from the ashes. Well, happily, I won wasn't mm. given one of those because there is a sword involved if you're right at the top of the phoenix order you do get a sword but no I got a little bit of a ribbon and something else and <laughs> you know it, it was a wonderful ceremony and the main thing of course is is the honour and it's awarded in my case by the president of Greece so it's not um, any particular body wow. it's, it goes right up to the top and I'm hoping one day um, in fact quite soon with any luck that I'll actually get to meet her. She is, of course, the first female president uh, of Greece.
0: Sakilaropoulou is, uh, is who we're talking about, That's obviously. It. And um, yeah, I mean, what an honor that, that must be for you. How does it feel for you for, as, as someone who has studied so extensively about Greece? And, you know, it, to be fair, it has contributed so much to the story, you know, the retelling of the story of ancient Greece to be given such honours.
2: Well, you're very kind. But on the other hand, I do feel slightly embarrassed because I am not Greek. So I'm an honorary Greek. I'm a Greek by adoption. I'm a Greek in spirit. But uh, it isn't the same as being a Greek. And so I aspire as high as, (laughs) high as I can. I'm an honorary citizen, as you say, of Sparta. I have an honorary degree from the University of Thessaly. And I'm going to get one next year from the University of Thessaloniki, the Aristotelian university. Wow, so I've, um, I don't know what it was, but I started studying ancient Greek at the age of 11. So my family was well enough off for various reasons to afford to send me to private school from the age of, uh, f- well, really from the age of three, I went to a nursery school. And then five, what we call wow. in England a prep school. And then I moved to a very distinguished yeah. London. Um, again, we have this funny term, public school, actually. They're private. And St. Paul's School was founded in 1509. It has a junior school, Collet Court. So I went to Collet Court, and it's named after Dean Collet, who was the founder of St. Paul's School. And Collet founded it to be open to people of all nations and countries indifferently so in other words totally global but there was a stipulation they had to learn Greek and Latin this is back in 1509 so it's the Renaissance so I went to a school where the tradition of classics the Greeks were as it were domesticated and I learned Greek from the age of eleven. But it was not so much that. It was um, when I first went to Greece, which by some people's standards was late. In other words, it was in uh, when I was um, after having done my degree. Some people went well before in their teens and so on. But I first went to Greece aged 22, 23. And this was in the late 60s, early 70s, 69, 70. And I don't know what it was, something about the air, something about the scenery, something about the vegetation. I particularly love Greek herbs. But at any rate, I felt that this was my home. I mean, in a most peculiar way, it's not Mm. artificial. I really felt that in some way I was better suited temperamentally, environmentally in Greece than I was I'd been brought up in really quite um, dismal times in Britain. I was born immediately after the Second World War. We had rationing until 1954. I went to school past bomb sites. And uh, this is just absolutely standard. London was grey. I I don't know if you've been to London. Now, of course, it's grey again, because we had a brilliant period in the 60s, But we've now gone back, I think. We're in a rather poor position. And I've just heard on the news today that um, something like 4 million people in Britain are desperately poor, of whom 1 million are children. And which parts of the country are most poor? London. Unbelievable. Mm, Wow. I was going to say, Paul, have you done your DNA testing? Have
1: you got any Greek
2: <laughs> in you? I'm sure you well, might have something. Well, you, you say connected. You, you said that probably as a joke, but I have a dear friend in North America. He's called Skip Gates, Henry Louis Skip Gates, black American. We met ages ago coincidentally through Clare College. He's an honorary fellow of Clare. And he has a particular, you can understand why, fascination with ancestry. And there is in the States an outfit called ancestry. And so he arranged for me to have my DNA tested. So I was hoping there might be a smidgen of Mediterranean. But no, I'm a boring Northwest European. (laughs) I'm not even particularly Scandinavian. And I'll explain why I'm I'm disappointed about that for two reasons. First, I don't know if you've ever come across an affliction of the little finger, which is called Diputren's contracture, Dupoutrin's contracture. Well, it means that your little finger goes off at 90 degrees. So it's um, parallel to the ground if you're holding your fingers right up. So, anyway, um, that is very characteristic of people from Scandinavia. So Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and so on. And then, secondly, my name, Cartledge. Well, There are quite a few of us around. It's not um, a unique, it's not a really strange name. And there is a little village, a hamlet, really, in the uh, North Midlands of England called Cartledge. So I asked somebody with an expertise in naming of places in relation to ethnic or other origin. And so he did suggest to me that it wasn't impossible, that it's a corruption, an English corruption of de cartilage, cartilage as in the thing in your knee and what have you. And so he suggested it could be a Norman French name and that when William the Conqueror came over 1066 he carved up the country and he gave to his mates bits of England so that you find Norman names scattered around and that therefore this village may have been part of the land assigned to somebody called De large Not wow. impossible. So you can imagine how disappointed I was <laughs> when I found that my DNA does not have any Scandinavian. Of course, Normans got to France and so it's not impossible that... Um, the Northmen, that's why they're called Normans, um, came from France into England, and maybe that's... anyway. I am uh, boringly Northwest European. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing to be ashamed of DNA by the means. <laughs> DNA-wise. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, oh, these, these
1: days, uh, Tom, yeah. yeah. We, we've already claimed you, Paul, anyway. You're an honorary exactly.
2: Greek to anyway. You're Greek. We, you know, there's no, there's no question from our end. <laughs> Am I allowed to ask where you two came from? Your own ancestry. Well,
0: funnily enough, so my, uh, my whole family is from Corfu, and we've only right. had, we've only had one person in our family do a DNA test from uh, from there, and this, you know, on both sides of the family, it's from Corfu it as far back as we can ascertain. And this particular, this uh, my auntie, so my mum's sister, was the one who did the the DNA test. It came back overwhelmingly Greek, but it was interesting. I think there was a twenty or so percentage where being from Corfu, we expected something Venetian or something like that. It came back yeah, it came back as San yeah, Marino. Yeah. Also, areas of the Black Sea and the U- and the Ukraine, and uh, you know, just one little one percenters as well. So, that was an interesting one for us. But yeah, as far as far back as we can really ascertain, it's Corfu all the way. <laughs> So, <laughs>
1: yeah, wow, and Nick, <laughs> yeah, all the way down, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, my I know who my great great grandfather was, and he was from the same region of Greece, which is uh northwest in the mountains of uh, it was the Suli region, uh, Epirus. yeah, Epiros, Suli region. Yeah. So, where well, that's yeah. where we're from. So, my great great grandfather was a, a priest, so our surname was Pappas. he was a local priest, and then he had a uh, couple of kids and one was called Athanasios and that eventually became our surname no. so yeah who are you i Athanasios son that's what Athanasios means so we branched off so there's a couple of surnames that came from that part like the Lucas family we came from the same branch of people but yeah our ancestors were in this village which held roughly 2,000 people and their claim to fame is not one Turk ever set foot in there ever and they were hidden by mountains. No, so no, it was all no. surrounded by a cliff, and there was no way to get in. And the only thing that Turks really wanted was the taxes back then. So as long as they paid taxes, they left them alone. And that's what happened for three, four hundred years, or whatever right. it was.
0: Fairly similar areas, really. It's a, we're just Thank a you. stone's throw away from each other. But look, we're, 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 about, well, we're about 10 minutes in already. We haven't even done our official opening. So let's get into the episode properly.
1: Nick, should we have a drink? Definitely, mate.
0: Yamas. <laughs> and true to form, we're we're on the Uzo. Come on, we've say started. the
2: truth,
1: mate. What do we have before?
0: <laughs> we had water and vitamins
1: <laughs> before.
0: <laughs> we're getting old. We're getting old. This podcast started with such high, high hopes. We, we, you know, we, we started off as raging alcoholics and slowly, slowly, we've wow. regressed to being...
1: Uh, you know, oh, <laughs> to we're getting being old, man. We don't want to get sick. <laughs> we've got it tickling our throat. I've got it really... Easy. next I 2 months coming up I thought, fuck i can't get sick <laughs> so we popped in some water in the tablets but this is where the the tipper on no, the user does quite, well no quite yeah well tipper on was so all you wait good.
2: till you get really old <laughs> <laughs> Will you wait till you get really old, you guys? Well, I think you've probably got 20 years, uh, you know, behind me to to go. So, well, yeah, well, yeah. As
0: they say in Icaria, which is, you know, as we all know, is in the blue zone. You don't have the right it to is. say that you're old until you're something like 90 or 100. Yeah. Something Until like then, you're young. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So look, like, as I said in the intro, Paul, I mean, that PBS series, I watched that in high school. Actually, just before I started high school, and it was our, my high school history teacher, uh, Mr. Daly. Big shout out to you, because he was a fantastic uh, history teacher. He was the one who actually introduced my class to it. And it's just been the mainstay of... I think many classes and, you know, a lot of generations of people who have been studying ancient Greece. Was that particular documentary special in any way?
2: Totally, because it was not only the only one I've actually done for PBS, but it was chosen by PPS to be one of their lead Programs, every six months, PBS and other channels pitch to the relevant journalists who are going to promote or comment on the upcoming TV series in the next six month period. So this was one of PBS's top. which meant going to the Ritz-Carlton Huntington in Pasadena and then getting a visit to the Getty Centre and so on. I met uh, Neeson, who Mm. is six foot uh, four or five, I think. And one of my um, colleagues is a a lovely guy. He's called Josh Josiah Ober. Um, Yes. Not from German, I thought it was. But no, it's actually from French. Aubert, A-U-B. E-R-T was anglicised to O-B-E-R so I assumed he was German and when I uh, first met him I was uh, in Cambridge in Clare College and I was looking around for a short guy, probably dark and there was this towering fellow he's 6 foot 5 so I have in my office a picture of him next to Neeson and I'm a a titch, I'm merely (laughs) 5'9", 5'10". And the pro- the producer of the um, programme, the man who ran Atlantic Productions, was there with us. So I treasure that. And what was interesting about it was, of course, partly Neeson's uh, voiceover, but also partly the notion, I, I don't know if you remember this, but of having static actors yes. impersonating... Yeah, okay. Well, I wasn't absolutely sure about that. But nevertheless, it's striking. And the guy who played Pericles, um, uh, Hmm. an actor called Vernon Dobscheff, he is no longer with us, I think. This is now, what, 2000, was it, Tom? Something like that. It must have been 1999-2000, yeah. That's it, that's it. When you were, as you say, still in your short um, trousers and so on. (laughs) And um, they, I think... Uh, acted as uh, a very distinctive feature. The other feature that was good was the the visuals, lots and lots of background pictures as the story was being narrated. And I thought that was extremely clever, the way they were cut and intercut. And now I'm completely used to it, but um, CGI was to me then probably something completely new. And so the whole thing was fun, but I'm an academic, I'm not a filmmaker, so I wrote a little book, um of the same title which is published both in the states and uh, yeah and I'm proud that I think that's still uh, it's available on Abe Books and other such outlets so I'm pleased there was some sort of legacy but I, I don't know if you've done one of these yourself but the director, I, I was as it were the director, I was the consultant, you really don't have very much say over the final um, cut because, well partly contractually you don't it's the director of the programme but also because um Somehow or other, the difference between what you would ideally like to be said and shown and what can be said and shown is quite big. I've actually written about popular... Um, programs of history documentary and others of the ancient world of which of course there are a ton and one of my very best friends and this is how i've mainly acted in the um, tv business is bethany hughes so i've acted as consultant on i think five of her programs but I'm not myself the sort of person. I don't actually like seeing myself on the screen. So I've typically not been brilliant when I've been in one of these talking heads things. We would but beg that to one, differ. of course, wasn't uh, a talking... Oh, no, 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 come on, come on. No,
0: no, we would definitely anyway. beg to differ on that point. But you do raise a very interesting point about, you know, the final cut, because in particular in that documentary, there's a whole episode almost dedicated to Cleisthenes. And his role in democracy and whatnot. Now, further reading yep, would, yeah. further reading would also point to the name Solon as well as being as being a pivotal figure in that discussion. Is that an example of the type of editing liberties that need to take place for something like that?
2: Well yes and no. In that case, why Cleisthenes? Well this is where Josh Ober Came in because he happens to be an expert on that. But you probably know this the evidence for Cleisthenes, contemporary evidence, both for him as a person and for what his role may or may not have been in the, um, well, if you're Ober, you call it a revolution. Uh, certainly it's a transformation of Athenian politics about 500 BC. Well, the evidence is terrible. It's very, very slight, it's contradictory. And all of it is non contemporary. So historians typically want good contemporary evidence. What counts as good? Full, detailed, accurate, objective. Well, the evidence for Cleisthenes is neither full nor objective. Solon, interestingly, is a different case. Um, You'd have thought, because he's about 100 years before, we would know less about Solon. Wrong, because Solon wrote poetry, and he promoted his campaign to transform Athens, which he did, by issuing poems, by going into the marketplace and attracting a crowd and then bellowing out his poems. And he had them written down. Either he did it himself or he got a slave, literate slave, to write them on papyrus. And astonishingly, a good number of Solon's poems, including political poems where he says, I did not do this because I did this, because, and this was terrible, and this was good, and this was, and so on. He actually sets out what we would call a manifesto. Now, as a result of that, and partly because Athenian politics after Cleisthenes, in other words, after the democratic revolution or transformation, were very fraught people would never happily agree. It's not one big happy family. Politics in the Athenian democracy was constantly fraught, both over issues and over personalities. So there was a very bad period towards the end of the 5th century BC. we in the 411 period, 411 BC. There was a revolution against democracy. And ever thereafter, there was a battle, not just physical, not just um, at the ballot box, but of words about the past. So who really found it? the Athenian democracy, was a major issue from about 400 BC on, looking back 100 years to Cleisthenes, 200 years to Solon. Now, you brought Solon in there, and I have to constantly fight against people who accept the later biased view that Solon founded the democracy, when actually, now this is me, the historian speaking, as Herodotus told us, Herodotus is the nearest we get to being um, contemporary. He actually was born 20, 30 years after Cleisthenes' reforms, if they are Cleisthenes'. At any rate, things got very, very, um, as I say, fraught in the fourth especially in the 4th century, but going back to the 5th. So, I have to say, look, what Solon did was necessary as preliminaries to what Cleisthenes did. In other words, Cleisthenes couldn't have done what he did had Solon not done what he did. And between Solon and Cleisthenes, you probably come across this as a character called Pisistratus. mm mm-hmm. Now, Pisistratus was what the Greeks called a tyrant. Tyrant was not a Greek word originally. They borrowed it probably from neighboring people called the Lydians, who lived in what's today Western Turkey. And the point of tyrant is what's the difference between a tyrant and a king? Well, they're both sole rulers. They probably both autocrats. They might be totally absolute rulers. What's the difference then between a king and a tyrant? The tyrant seizes power, the king receives it, often by birth. And so Pisistratus had a bodyguard, he got involved in the civil war, bumped off enemies, and then became tyrant. But as tyrant, he didn't behave what we call tyrannically. He was actually quite a benevolent despot or (laughs) ruler of a soul kind. And so the reforms that he made work were the reforms of Solon. With one exception, he made sure that members of his family were always holding the top executive posts. So he, as it were, stood at the top of the pyramid but also beside the pyramid of power and so he was overthrown or rather his son hippias was overthrown ironically by sparta it wasn't an internal revolution that put an end to um, hippias spartans invade tyrant family is expelled big civil struggle develops two to three years from which Cleisthenes emerges as the leading figure. Now he is not a man of the people. He is an aristocrat with connections by birth. A grandfather of his was a tyrant in another city. So he's got um links by birth and marriage to another city. He's not purely Athenian. It's a most interesting fact about ancient Greece, where The Athenians were very hot on, you have to be an Athenian to hold any sort of position in Athens, any sort of political role. And yet the founding father of the city's democracy was a man with non-Athenian um, connections through his mother. And so, um, interestingly, things are not as simple as they often seem. Yeah. And then wow. uh, I've often made this point. As you know, I've written a book on democracy myself, and I say there was no such thing as Greek democracy. And I mean by that that there are a ton of Greek cities, about a thousand, about a quarter of them at one time or other had a form of democracy. There were many forms of democracy. Athens had at least three forms of democracy, not at the same time, but successively. So democracy is complicated, Cleisthenes is complicated, Solon is complicated. Wow, we're off to a flying start. Yeah, <laughs>
1: fantastic. So when were the ancient Greeks known as Greeks? And what defined a Greek back then? So when did when they start behaving and say, well, you know what, we're calling these the, people Greeks?
2: It's a very, very good question. As we all know, you being Greek and I being an adopted Greek, Greeks did not call themselves Greeks, and they never have. And so we British speakers and many other European languages call them Greeks, because the Romans did. The Sorry, bloody Romans who conquered. <laughs> what have they ever done for us? <laughs> in sight. What have they ever done for us? Well, one thing they have, it's, it's not often um, pointed out, is give us the, the name Greek. Well, there is a group of people living in. Th- no, no, in Thessaly. This is in ancient times. Oh. And in the northeast of Greece. You guys are from the northwest. And they were called the Grecoi. And so what the, the Romans did was they took a piddling part of the Greek people, the Graikoi, and forced the name on the whole lot. And so it's, I always, if I'm in the States, I say it's as if you you think of Delaware as the United States. <laughs> Delaware is one of the smallest states. Yeah. And it's as if America really today Delawarian. were called Delaware. Yeah. Delawareans. <laughs> I don't know what the Australian equivalent would be. But um, at any rate, that means that Victorians. Um, the <laughs> first actual use... <laughs> That would yeah. be unfortunate. <laughs> but well, of course, Victoria from yeah. Latin, yes. Latin, the goddess of victory. At any rate, um, the um, first use of the word Hellenes, and in fact it's Pan Hellenes, comes in a poet of the 7th century BC, BCE, before Christ or before the Common Era, called Archilochus. And he was a, a wacky guy. He came from the island of Paros, the uh, marble island in the Kiklaves, the Cyclades, and he emigrated to the island of Thassos. And he was a very bad boy and he writes about his uh, bad boy behavior and so on. But he refers to all Greeks, Pan Hellenes. Well, that implies the Pan is all, the Hellenes is Greeks, that the term Greeks existed. And of course, Greeks being Greeks, they have to mythologize it. So there has to be an original. Helene, who gives his name to the Greek people. And this is all set out in um, great detail in a poem which is probably quite near in time to Archilochus. So we're talking 670s, 660s, 650s BC, BCE, by Hesiod, or in Greek, Hesiodos. He came from Boeotia in central mainland Greece, and he wrote a whacking great long um, thing called works and days and he wrote another whacking great long poem called the theogony and it's in the theogony which means the birth of the gods and goddesses that the as it were family tree the genealogy of all greeks is traced including the ancestors of the dorians the achaeans the aeolian you know everybody must have a mythical ancestor now that's myth together with purely language when do i say there were greeks living in greece at what date from what date well typically one goes by language when was greek a form of greek first a form of um, dominant language. In other words, you can imagine that the rulers of the land spoke it, or at least had it spoken to them and written for them. And it was only in 1953 that it was finally discovered that the earliest form of written Greek was inscribed in what are called Linear B tablets. So there's bits of clay on which... Scribes wrote down economic facts about kingdoms. So, how many sheep have we got? How much flax? is being grown in this part of the kingdom. So we're in a um, society of kingdoms, um, massive um, fortified citadels. Mycenae is the most famous. Sparta had one, Pylos done in the southwest, Thebes had one, Athens had one. There are three on Crete. And they used the Linear B. Why is it Linear B? Because it uses some of the symbols of a script which is known as Linear A, and that is the Minoan, this is a modern term, a Cretan script, in a language we can't decipher. So it's not known what language Linear B writes, but the writers and the inventors of Linear B, they borrowed quite a number of the signs from Linear A and then applied them to their Greek language, and it was deciphered yeah. as Greek only in 1953 by a guy called Michael Ventris who is a an architect and his academic colleague John Chadwick, who was a scholar here in Cambridge. He actually went to the same school that I went to in London as well. So my answer to your question is twofold. On the one hand, mythologically, historical Greeks of the 7th century BC are calling themselves Hellenes. We don't have any earlier evidence than that, though obviously they did call themselves that before the 7th century. But historically, there were hellenes there were greek speakers in at least um seven or eight places in the later greek world from at least 1400 mm. bc bce
0: wow you mentioned at length there about the mythology of it and you know one of the one of the things i've got noted down here obviously is the influence of homer during that period and i'm sure that he- he plays a role somewhere in what, you, what you've just uh, just spoken about. Very much. You mentioned in that PBS documentary how people like Cleisthenes were inspired by the stories as told by Homer of Achilles and the heroes and whatnot. What is the role of mythology in ancient Greece? And even today, what's the legacy of that? It seems to me that it sort of underpins a lot of our language and a lot of our traditions today as well.
2: Quite right. Well, the word muthos in ancient Greek comes from a word just meaning to say something. So it's a saying, it's a tale, and it in itself the word muthos doesn't tell you whether it's a real historical tale or it's a fictional tale or it's about gods or about humans. Muthos is just a tale, and in particular a tale that is traditional. So you and I, we've heard lots of stories, and many of them people have heard before us and they go back generations and generations. So myths are traditional tales which retain significance. You don't tell a story to somebody if what you're saying is not going to mean anything to them or if they're not going to be interested in it. So what you're talking about has to be of more significance than just to the small uh, little circle that's actually telling the tale or version of it at the particular time. So now Homer, well, the reason why um, he became he, if he was a, a one, <laughs> was that his two epic poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, were carved out from a much wider bunch of epic Stories Epos, by the way, just means a word, so when we say something's epic um <laughs> we're basing it on the fact that the original words of Homer were epic in scale, I mean some what is it fifteen thousand words in the Iliad. 12,000 words in the Odyssey. It takes three days to (laughs) recite it, um, you know, continuously. So um, the scale of the thing is what's um, so uh, extraordinary about it. Now, Homer never uses the word Hellene or Hellenes. He's got three other words which meant Greeks, but he didn't have Hellenes as one of the words in his vocabulary. I think one reason for that is that his uh, origins, the origins of the epic tradition, which Homer is the culmination of, go back centuries, perhaps five centuries, mm. perhaps back to about 1300. And Homer, if there was one Homer, or Homer and the people who first heard a version of the Iliad, and a version of the Odyssey. They're living in the 8th century BC, in the 700s, and that is exactly when the Greeks discovered a new form of writing. So I talked about linear B script, that is a syllabary. Each sign stands for a consonant plus vowel, whereas The Greek alphabet or the various Greek alphabets of the 8th century and later, of course, have a sign for every different sound. And of course, it's a fully phonetic alphabetic script, absolutely brilliant invention, which is the origin of all the world's uh, Western alphabets via the Greeks who went to live in uh, Italy. So the Etruscans borrowed it, so the Romans borrowed it, and so eventually the Romans Romans conquer Europe, so the Europe gets a, um, an alphabetic script. Greek monks go to Russia, and so um, Russians get a Cyrillic Greek alphabet, and so on and so on. So Homer... I think probably because of the extraordinary focus, it is, of course, about Achilles. Though the word Iliad means to do with the city of Ilion or Troy, actually, it doesn't even describe the fall of Troy. That's described in the Odyssey, because what Homer the poet is interested in in the Iliad is the rage Of Achilles. How does it play out? He withdraws from the fighting. When he goes back in, he's raging and he murders the leading fighter on the Trojan side, Hector. And then that's where the poem ends. So um, you don't know that Troy is going to fall (laughs) by the end of the Iliad because all the poet focuses on is the reaction of. Uh, Hector's father, Priam, he comes to Achilles and he kisses Achilles' hands. I think that's the most extraordinary Mm. passage in, well, perhaps in all world literature, but in that particular poem. Anyway, I love, as you can gather, I love Homer, but I I read him, though, as an archaeologist and a historian at university and for my doctorate at school. I read him just to learn Greek, because it's a funny kind of Greek. As you probably know, no Greek ever spoke Homeric Greek. Only in the context of an epic recital was Homeric Greek uttered, because it's an artificial language, Interesting. not a natural one that was spoken. Yes, it's, uh, the whole thing about Homer is utterly extraordinary, so I could go on forever. Look, two questions, the Iliad and the Odyssey, how much of that is
1: true, the first question, and number two, were the Trojans Greek? Was,
2: it, was the Trojan War a Greek civil war by any chance? What's your view on that? Both very interesting questions, I and mean, I'll take the, the second one. Trojans speak Homeric Greek. Uh, there's an awful lot of speaking. in Within the poem, characters are given long speeches, and so the, Homer, the uh, Homer's Trojans speak Greek perfectly. They worship Athena, who is, of course, utterly Greek. And in some ways, their culture in what we call archaeological culture so, what pots did they use? What houses did they build? What do their walls look like? And all that. Quite similar, but not totally. In other words, you excavate Troy and you excavate Mycenae and you see similarities, but you also see differences. So, it's purely a convention that the People living in northwest what's now Turkey uh are... as it were, greek eyes, they're Hellenized in the Trojan story of Homer, which, of course, makes, you're right, I think what you're leading up to, was it a civil war? There's no war form of war that is nastier than civil war. Greeks know that incredibly well in antiquity and, of course, 4649. So that gave to the listeners a real frisson. You know, why were we fighting? was it really such a good thing to spend 10 years just to get Helen back what good you know what what good has Helen ever done for us as it were and no I'm serious and there were Greek poets um Stesichorus Euripides who chose a version of the myth whereby Helen never got to Troy yes she was stolen by Paris and very wickedly adultery and all that but where did she end up in Egypt She never got further north than that. Well, that's a a version. That's what Greek myth did. Mm. It could play around with the details. Then that leads me on to your other half. How true was there ever a Trojan War? Answer, in the sense that allegedly it was 10 years, no. um, It takes only a few days to sail from where the Greek fleet sailed in Boeotia, a place called Aulis, Avlida, to um, near um, where Troy is. It's called Hisalic today, the Hellespont, the Dardanelles. So (laughs) 10 years um, being just a few days' sail away, uh, fight, no. And the action of the Iliad, it's been calculated. If you work out how many days Homer talks about, it's in the last of the 10 years of the war, and it's about mm. two months. So the epic is not a 10-year epic. That would have taken, my God, how long would the poem have been? It's a very intense focus on just one period in the 10th year and before Troy actually falls. It's an utterly brilliant um, conception, but it's very, very puzzling historically. Now, I'm on the sceptical wing. There are those who say, yes, that it's conceivable, given the what we We know about Mycenaean Greeks, Greeks of the late Bronze Age. They could have theoretically got together such a huge expedition. We hear of, in not now Greek, but neighbouring Hittite, Records. The Hittites are the people, their capital is near modern Ankara, and they had most of um, Asia Minor, most of Turkey, up to the Dardanelles in their power. They had a great kingdom, a great empire, but they didn't actually directly own, control the site of Troy. But there are, there are connections between Troy and the Hittites which are closer than between Troy and the Greeks. And in the Hittite records, there is a case of a fight, a war over a woman who has been stolen. So it's not impossible that the Greeks heard stories coming from Asia Minor, from what's Turkey today, and built it up into a huge story using a certain amount of historical knowledge, that is, why... Should Helen have come from Sparta and not from elsewhere? Well, because Sparta was important. And then in the story, in the myth, the king of Sparta, he's not a Spartan, actually, you probably know this. He comes from Mycenae because he's the brother of Agamemnon, who is the great overlord of all the Greeks in the Homeric version of the Trojan story. So, yes, there's a bit of history there. But for me, it's mainly... Uh, a fiction based on a very little bit of historical um, truth. Looking at it objectively,
0: how important are those two texts in particular to Western civilization's uh, literary uh, culture and history? I mean, we we talk about things like the Bible as well and whatnot. Where does it sit in terms of importance?
2: Totally is the answer. And I've talked only about uh, the Iliad so far because the Odyssey... There is much less of a question of whether or not a person called Odysseus could possibly have uh, suffered, because that's actually what um, the main theme of it is—the sufferings of Odysseus in the way that he did. So. A number of the um, features, such as the magic realism of the Cyclops, Polyphemus, with his one eye, and he's huge and he's an absolute brute. Or the sirens, the ladies who sing so beautifully. They're goddesses, of course. They're immortal. And they lure sailors onto their shore and then they devour them. Well, I don't think there were many sirens. I don't think there were many Polyphemus. Famous is around. So this is what's called folktale and fiction added to the saga, which is what you get in the Iliad. Now, what basis, if any, is there in history? Well, it is the case that Odysseus is said to be from the west, from a rocky island. Now, this is getting near your homelands of Ithaca. However, there is such little evidence for a Mycenaean civilization kingdom on the island of today, Ithaca, that people say, oh, well, what's called Ithaca today may not have been what Homer, that's to say the poet singing about Odysseus, understood Ithaca to be. Maybe that was somewhere else where there was a palace. But another view is that it's all fiction. In other words, Odysseus's power, his kingdom, is really just a sort of attempted counterpoise to the truly massive kingdoms of Mycenae, Pylos, and Sparta, and to some extent Thebes, to some extent Knossos, and Chania, and so on and so on in Crete. So the interest, I think, historically is of where Odysseus travels. He he's supposed to have taken a likely like 10 story years <laughs> to get back somewhere that should have taken him two well, weeks. Mean, theory you know, and and we theory on that, and of do. course, after
1: our tenth oozo, I think we're sitting back. What island what did we go to? <laughs> <think> we went <laughs> yeah. to one of those islands where the nymphs were, and we thought maybe Odysseus. We knew he was a very clever guy, really good orator. who was probably such a really good storyteller. Right, right, right. He made up all these amazing stories, and he didn't want to go back home. So we started to question what Penelope was like.
2: Well, she was Spartan. I'm, I won't hear a, a word against Penelope. Was she Spartan or was and, she from Ithaca? No, she was Spar- Well, Ben which version you, you follow, I suppose. But, I mean, according to the dominant one, she was from a noble but not the royal Spartan family. So she's from Sparta and was married off to Odysseus. And so she, she leaves. Um, typically, women um, were more likely to leave their homeland and marry elsewhere than men mm. were likely to marry in. Men are less is the exception, not, not Penelope. At any rate... Um, <laughs> to me to me, the interesting thing about the ten years is do you know where he spent seven of those ten years surely. He, no, he spent oh, yes. them with Calypso. Calypso's Beach, which
0: is where we were. And yes,
2: exactly, where we were. exactly where her beach or her island was is just up in the air because it's yeah. total fantasy. And he claimed, now I remember we only have his <laughs> word for it, as Homer's put the words in his mouth, that he wanted <laughs> to leave. No, I think that he, he was very happy for seven years. And then Had Hermes pitches up, messenger of all the Olympian gods, led by Zeus and Hera and he says look mate you've got to go home and um he you know what the gods order you, you have to obey and so he set off he made his raft and uh, <laughs> by this time you probably know he had no companions by the time he gets to calypso all his mates his shipmates have done stupid things and they've been eaten by the polyphemus and that sort of thing so he's on his own and he fetches up, finally, on, well, it's said to be um, Fiatia, Fiatia. Now, that is thought to be your Corfu. Well, you know all this. And so we get to a bit of, um, as it were, history there, because why would a storyteller in the 8th century BC be able to tell a story of a man ending up in what is um, Corfu, that would make sense in the 8th century BC. The Iliad is all eastern. It's all Aegean, northwest Turkey, mainland Greece. But the Odyssey ends up in the far west. Well, it so happens that in real time, beginning in about 750 BC, real Greeks from the island of Euboea, Evia, had permanently settled around the Bay of Naples. And in order to get there, you have to sail up through the straits, you know what I'm saying. You have to, in order to get up there, you've got to go pretty much the route Odysseus goes on the um, southern leg. So North Africa up to through Sicily, the Straits of Messina, up to the other side of Italy and so on, and then back and round. That's where Greeks were going at that time. I'll finish off with um rounding up what you I'm sorry to keep on talking. I'm not. I'm normally much <laughs> no, no 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 I'm that's normally great. <laughs> more laconic, uh, Spartan. But um the the other what people have said, okay, the point of the Iliad is to make Greeks in the eighth century feel great again. So, you know, once upon a time, we were so united and powerful, we went over and we smashed these wretched barbarians in in northwest Anatolia in Asia. Well, what's the point of the Odyssey? One of its points is to tell you what it is to be Greek, how to behave as a Greek, as opposed to all the other peoples that you're now starting to encounter around the central... Uh, and western um, part of the Mediterranean. And so the Cyclops episode is a classic because the poet says the Cyclopes, they have no laws. They are unsociable. They don't live quietly in, and so on. So in order to be a good Greek, you've got to have laws. You've got to be sociable. You mustn't eat people and so on and so it's teaching greeks what it is to be greek in a cultural not in an ethnic but in a cultural sense
0: just on that story with the cyclops i was reading that to my five-year-old not two weeks ago and he's absolutely fascinated with it absolutely fascinated Mm
1: -hmm. yeah so So what was what was his name nobody no
0: yeah, <laughs> that's right.
2: Yes, <laughs> is your name? yes, yeah. no, so smart, yeah. Very isn't
1: it? <laughs> actually, I went, I went to Ithaki. Yeah, I was there yeah, two months yeah. ago, and they were selling T-shirts. My name is nobody. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's one. <wonderful>. Well, actually, <laughs> well,
0: further to that, so you mentioned Paul that uh, rightly that the Phaeacians effectively are suppo- supposedly in Corfu. Where my wife is from, the beach of the Bay of Palio Castritsa is effectively where they where they say that Odysseus was washed ashore and was, you know, picked up by, yes. by Nafsika. And they do this this thing called a Varcarola each year, which is basically a reenactment of that. And I was part of it this year.
2: Ah. <laughs> wow. I was actually part what of what it. What part did you
0: play? Uh, I... <laughs> <laughs> none of, none of the actual parts in the story. I was in the band beforehand. Minding right, on a guitar. Great, that's great. But yeah, they do that every year. Yeah. And there's a there's a great reenactment. There's at least, you know, five five to eight thousand people or so show up yeah. to, to that beach. Massive. So the story wow. continues to, to evolve and continues to be relevant today. Well, I mean we've 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 only done a few things so far and you it's know it's, good summer we're learning anyway on, on Homer. Well, I think we should sort of move over to Athens and the rise of Athens. I mean, we we touched on it a a little bit, but it's played such a huge role in terms of what people think Greece to be, or what did make Athens so important during that period? So I'm talking particularly the, the period around 500 to 440 BC, or even the sort of classical period. What was it that made it rise into an empire? (laughs)
2: Well, I can answer that more easily than what was it that altogether made the Athenian mix so unique. It's like Florence, round about 1500, Leonardo, Michelangelo and so on. Why were there so many stunningly, brilliantly creative individuals interacting, not just out on their limbs, but they were all actually in various interactivities at that time, so roughly between, actually, I would go a little bit further than you, because into the what we call the 4th century, the 300s, you've got names such as Plato and Demosthenes and Mm. Aristotle. Now, Aristotle's not an Athenian, not an Athenian, but all the other great ones, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, um, they tend to be (laughs) Athenians, which is quite extraordinary. Well, We talked about Solon Cleisthenes, so Athens becomes a form of people power, a democracy from about 500. Now, you don't do democracy only in uh, formal political gatherings, the theatre was also a democratic political. Space where by participating in what was a religious festival in honor of Dionysus, you're both being religious and you're being collectively Athenian and you're doing democracy because that's how you learn about democratic things, how it is to think about issues of justice and um, punishment and power uh, via. Mythical tales, which of course often are tales not of Athenian myth, but they're borrowed from the myths of other cities. For example, Thebes, the story of Oedipus, the house of Oedipus and his daughter Antigone. So, what's the explanation? Um, Partly coincidence, obviously, but the major factor, the external factor, that Interacted with domestic chains of causation was the Persian threat and the actual Persian invasion in the early part of the fifth century BC. First 490, then 480. It's very convenient, round numbers 10 years apart. 490, Battle of Marathon. 480, Battle of Salamis. Battle of Marathon meant that Athens was not conquered and put to the torch and um, treated as the neighbouring city of Eretria on the island of Evia, Euboea was. 480 BC, Battle of Salamis. By this time, a number of Greeks, not many, um, something like 30 Greek cities have agreed to unite in resistance to the invasion they know is coming. Because of Marathon, the Persian Empire can't tolerate a defeat like that. They still want to have Greece in the Persian Empire, because they don't want Greeks from mainland Greece intervening, interfering in Asia, where there are lots and lots of Greeks living along the West Coast. They've lived there for thousands of years. And so it was when um, the Athenians sent troops to help their, as it were, brothers in Asia against the Persians when they rose up against the Persians. Persians didn't forgive the Athenians for meddling in what they considered the Persians, their own internal affairs. So massive invasion, 480, led by Xerxes, Persian empires based in what is today Iran, southern Iran, Persepolis, Pasargadae, Susa are the three main capitals. Massive land and sea expedition. And that caused, on the one hand, the highest degree of Greek unity ever since the Trojan War, which was myth, real unity, but still only partial, only 30-odd states out of 700 or so, actually united to fight against. Anyway, the Athenians and the Spartans led the resistance, and they both came out of the war, having won it amazingly, won it for various complicated reasons, enhanced immeasurably, but also rivals. So now Athens is the big top dog on the sea, Sparta the big top, dog on the land. And the issue was, what should we do now to prevent the Persians ever doing that again? And or how do we free those of our Greek comrades, our cousins in Asia, from Persian control? And it was the Athenians who picked up the torch. And they, with their fleet, took the battle to the Persians. And that's the answer to the question, how did the Athenians develop a big empire? I mean, it's not a big empire by the Persian standards or by Roman standards, but by Greek standards, it was immense, up to 200 allies, mainly islands in the Aegean. And so they, for the next 30 odd years, um, mounted a series of campaigns. And then Whatever reason, was there a formal peace or did they just both sides agree to stop fighting each other? Anyway, it's a period of peace. The Athenians have built up a big treasury, a lot of money, from tribute which the Athenians' allies pay to them to be their defenders or to lead the attack against the Persians. And the the Athenians have other internal sources, and they have in particular a resource which no other city has, silver. And so in the lead, it's basically lead, the silver is inside the lead in the southeast part of Atticae, which is the region round Athens in Lavrion area. The silver was the um, sort of economic basis of Athenian naval power. Anyway, from 450 onwards, the Athenians decide to monumentalize the centre of Athens on top of the Acropolis and down below in the Agora. So you get most famously the Parthenon, which is of course the most amazing, extraordinary, wonderful temple ever. Um, really, just it's in all sorts of ways unique. And um, it's not alone. It's part of a big programme. Now down below the Acropolis, there's a theatre. And that theatre was first carved out quite a long time before, in fact, probably about the time of Cleisthenes. But from the middle of the 5th century, you've got three Athenian tragic poets, Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides, who are not just masters of their particular local Athenian form of theatre, but they evolve an art form which still packs in the audiences partly because of its form it's very non-naturalistic it's very not not at all like um the theater that we're used to and it's in the open air and all sorts of fact only men are performing all the roles there are only three um speaking actors there are all sorts of things that are totally unlike what you and I would expect to see in a play. But nevertheless, the themes, as well as the way they're acted out, and the language, of course, is so extraordinary. So these have survived. These are eternal classics. But as well as that, Athens attracts philosophers. It attracts physicians. There is lots of um, brilliant dancing, political theory, writing of history. Athens is the magnet. Um, It is the cult capital of the Greek world and because non-Greeks, sailors traders, um, diplomats and others came to Athens because Athens is very centrally placed and its ports and so on, it's a wealthy uh, city, Athens diffuses its culture both west and east so theatre for example goes to Sicily, Sicilian Greeks get very keen on Athenian type tragic theatre and then just a end of the 5th century, this has been going on for some time, but there is competition, not only in tragedy, but in comedy. And so in the 420s, to begin with, a man called Aristophanes, Aristophanes um, develops um, the comic genre so that um, the whole tradition of Greek theatre in both tragedy and comedy, goes back to the 5th century and then carries on. You asked about, you know, Western culture. Well, there's a direct link through... There's a certain amount of sort of um, um, anti-pagan culture in the Middle Ages, as we call them. But anyway, the Renaissance happens in the 15th, 16th century. And so from then on... Greek and, by um, derivation, Roman literary culture has dominated the Western tradition.
1: Wow. Fascinating. I got so much out of that. Yeah. So, number one, did you say Aristofani was the first comedian that we've known of?
2: Yes, the first that w- that's at all famous, in other words, uh, scholars know about other people who wrote comedy in the 5th century BC. There's a, a line of Horace, yeah, there's a line of Horace which lists them all. Um, but Aristophanes is the only one whose plays survived long enough to be copied long enough to survive to the age of print. Sixteenth century, and so survived to the present. And the, I suppose the most famous one is the lycistrata, which is the cross dressing play. All the actors are males but some of them um, are acting women, some are acting men and the story is of um, a sex strike by Athenian women who want to stop the war which has been going on for 20 years. It's a a world war in Greek terms. So they resort to a sex strike and in the comic resolution of the play it works. Actually the war went on (laughs) for For another seven years but yeah you just triggered something in my
1: head you talked about how advanced the Athenians were and why they were so advanced or a magnet for everyone coming in when the Antikythera machine was discovered I read an article to say that if the Greeks were on that trajectory with all inventing such at a high level they, they said in 200 years I would have been at the moon traveling to the moon <laughs> what do you say about yeah. that Is there any truth in that? Were they on such a trajectory where they could have been in the moon 200 years later?
2: Well, when you say they, uh, you mean obviously only very totally exceptionally brilliant the Einsteins of the ancient Greek world, but more seriously, though the mathematical tradition that Archimedes was heir to he's the greatest ancient Greek mathematician, there are others, Euclid and so on, but um, the mechanism is thought to be somehow ultimately descended from the mathematical genius of Archimedes late 3rd century BC the mechanism is actually um, about a 100 years later, it's probably late 2nd century um, BC it was found in a wreck of the 1st century BC so we're talking about hundreds of years after the period I've been talking about at Athens, but there is a tradition of maths, now do you think that um, had um, I don't know quite how one imagine the uh, mechanism to have been received because there is no other one like it and it's possible that it was not Um, a scientific instrument of the sort that um, a modern scientist would recognise, but actually a kind of toy. In other words, a kind of way of, I know I can predict the eclipse in such and such a future time because I've got my mechanism. But actually, there wasn't a weather forecasting service. There wasn't any sort of national um, way of all Greeks benefiting directly from the knowledge that is in... Scribe literally, because there's writing on the mechanism. Um, there's no way that knowledge that's concentrated in that extraordinary um, instrument could have been diversified. And you need, don't you, a combination of a government that's prepared to put lots of money in, individual genius, and then the two of them um, sparking off each other, and a public that cares about wanting to go to the moon – Uh, You may or may not have heard of a character called Lucian, Lucianos in Greek. He wasn't Greek, he was Syrian, but he learned Greek and he wrote in Greek. Well, he imagined going to the moon. I mean, quite extraordinary. And as you probably also know, ancient Greeks it was. There was an ancient Greek who believed the earth went round the sun and not vice versa. So in other words, the heliocentric theory is an ancient Greek theoretical invention. They couldn't prove it. But They were way out of anything else anywhere in the world by the third century BC. This is the period of Archimedes. All that's true, but the consequence doesn't follow.
0: We talk about this flowering of culture and art and science and and whatnot. And I mean, you you pointed obviously to the Persian Wars as being a, a very unifying factor in being able to set the platform for that. I mean, is there anything else that you can think of that is? responsible for such a flowering during that period? Is it strange in itself that something like that happened?
2: Well, being myself a materialist historian, in other words, I look for explanations ultimately to the economic basis of any society. And I've pointed out that the possession of silver in the way the Athenians possessed it and were able to apply it to the building of the latest type of ship in war... That is an integral part of an any explanation. Athenian free citizens benefited hugely from having the sort of empire they did, because in order to eat bread, they typically were able to rely on imported uh, wheat. You can guess where from Ukraine. And that came through um, the Hellespont, the Dardanelles, down to the uh, port of Piraeus. So the Athenian, ordinary Athenian. Rowers who are rowing the ships, because these are not sail driven warships, these are oar driven warships, were relatively healthy and well fed and well off um, by comparison with most ancient populations of that period with comparable technology. The other thing, now this is the dark side, which is problematic. It's, it's awkward for me as a historian to have to say it. But one of the sources of Athenian, individual Athenians, huge wealth was slaves. And we know of an Athenian later than the period I'm talking about, end of the 5th century BC, he owned so many slaves that he could rent out 1,000 of them. To contractors who wanted to rent, hire his slaves to dig for them, so that they could get silver out of the ground, they would um, have to hand over to the state a certain amount of the silver. They kept a certain amount for themselves. That was, uh, if you're wealthy enough to buy a concession, you you rent a concession from the state, then you hope to make uh, a greater profit. Anyway, one guy, one guy owned one. 1,000 slaves. And where did the slaves come from? Well, they weren't Greek. They came from the area around the Greek world, from what's now Turkey, and from what's now Bulgaria, typically. They're the, the big two areas that supplied slaves, who were captured Uh, locally, uh, or they were prisoners of war, whatever, but slave traders brought them to slave trading ports in mainland Greece, for example the Bay of Volos, which was Pagasi in ancient Greek times, or the Piraeus, and slave owners bought them and then used them in various ways, either on the land or in manufacturing or in agriculture. So this is a slave-based society and there were many actually slaves who were educated, literate, they learned Greek. They weren't Greek, but they learned Greek enough to write down Greek to be the clerks of the courts, clerks of the assembly, clerks of the council. So Athens is a very um, slave-related, shall we say, society.
1: So just till I read on slaves. So were, were they getting paid or was it just purely they had food and accommodation? What what's the definition of a slave well, a, in those Yeah, ancient
2: now, times. Now there's a well there's a big argument about definition of slavery as you know today and uh, it's sometimes said there are more slaves today in the world than there were in 1830s when slavery was abolished in the British Empire for example. What's meant by that is lots of people are less than totally free. They're not actually owned physically as bits of property. In the ancient world, we're talking about chattel. Slavery, that is, human beings regarded as if they were things that you can buy and sell in exchange. So, by definition, they don't get a wage because they, except if they're hired out to someone else. But if you've got your slave working for you, you own that slave their life and they might be male they might be female they might be children they might be adolescents or adults but the point about slavery in this sense is that they are wholly owned commodities they are unpersons depersonalized and Therefore, in law, you can do practically anything with them you like, short of murdering them. I mean, and even that might be, um, you know, winked at, because, oh, well, it was only a slave. And, oh, no, I didn't kill him. Um, The guy dropped dead from a heart attack.
0: Well, I I mean, we could talk about Athens all day, and we'd probably have to dedicate an episode to, to that, but... Let's talk a little bit about the Spartans for a second, your people, Paul so yeah there's one thing that's just fascinated me since uh, since we were taught it in uh, in high school, and that was the fact that the Spartans would routinely declare war on the Helots. <laughs> I mean, this is such an interesting concept and speaks to well, i mean it we, is. as Greeks, we look at it and we think they're mad. <laughs>
2: Well, it's very worrying. I put it no stronger than that. Um, as I said, I have a problem in general with the fact that many Greek cities, and Athens in particular, used slaves. And in Athens' case, the slaves played absolutely key roles. So that Athens wouldn't have been the Athens it was, but for the slaves. Now, that in spades, if I can put it that way, is the case with Sparta, because Sparta's whole way of life, whole way of being, was entirely based on helots, such that Spartans, that is, adult males and their wives and their families, did no productive work whatsoever. If you think that in a pre-industrial society, 80 to 90% of the population typically is involved in agriculture in some way, that is, after the agricultural revolution, after uh, the notion of farming and having cereal crops and vines and olives. They're the three principal types of crops in ancient Greece. Well, they take a hell of a lot of work. You can't just sow the seeds and then sit back and wait till they come up and harvest the grain. And so um, the fact that the Spartans, as a people, did no Productive work whatsoever is, well, it may be unique. It's certainly very extreme. How that came about, that's one problem. In other words, how did the Helots come into existence ever in the first place? And then, how did the Helots see the Spartans, or vice versa? What was the nature of the relationship? And extraordinary facts like the one you've just uh, mentioned. And I think it is a fact. Some people would, of course, question almost anything that is said about Sparta. And I'll come back to why shortly. But if it is a fact that the Spartans declared war on the helots, they consciously wanted to make them in the legal status of enemies. Now, what's the one virtue of that? It doesn't truly raise the helots' feelings of love for their masters, but what it does is it means the masters can do to them what you or I, if we're called up, let's say we're in Ukraine and we kill a Russian, that's not murder, because it's war. So if a Spartan kills a helot, that's not murder. You don't get pollution, which you would if you committed a murder, and you're not going to be put on trial for murder because it's war. So can you imagine living in a constant state of war? Well, um, the Israelis have just declared war on Hamas and so on. Before that, de facto, they were in a state of war with them but now de jure. And so they bomb Gaza. The, the evidence for the Spartans declaring war annually is actually from Aristotle. Now, this is illustrative of a general problem with Spartan history. A lot of it is, or most of it, is non-Spartan. So we have hardly any actual Spartans talking to about their own society. There are exceptions, but very few. Aristotle and his pupils had a project we're going to find out all we can about one-sixth of all Greek cities. So they actually wrote accounts of 158 uh, communities, of whom one was non-Greek Carthage, the other 157 are Greek, and of course they include Athens and Sparta. Now the Spartan one survives only in bits and pieces of other people quoting Aristotle, and so this is a quotation from Plutarch, who wrote a biography of Sparta's equivalent of Cleisthenes or Thomas Jefferson, the founder of Sparta's political system. And I believe it because, as I've said to you, what is the point of declaring war on your main workforce? It doesn't, does it, make them feel better about themselves? What it does is enable you, at the limit, to kill a helot, without incurring the guilt and the pollution of murder. And why might you want to terrorise your workforce? Because many of them, and um, there is a basic division between the Western helots, who are called Messenians, and the Eastern helots, who are Laconians, well, the Messenians were much more upset about being slaves than the Laconians were because in their myth history, once upon a time they'd been free and these wretched Spartans had come and conquered them and enslaved their ancestors so that they were slaves by descent. It wasn't anything they had done which made them slaves. So it's um, rubbing salt into the wounds to declare war on you, I think, as the Spartans did. So It's just one of the many ways in which Spartan society was, I think, unique, certainly very different from any other Greek city. And then the downside is we've been talking about Athens' high culture, theatre, architecture, poetry, medicine. Uh, Sparta operated in a completely different way. Hardly any poetry. Yes, there was some, but hardly any, no major monumental architecture, and certainly no theatre. And they were very, very um, self-denying and uh, abnegating. So you could get a burial, yes, but no tombstone, no epitaph, unless you died in battle. I mean, how extraordinary is that? Because the main way in which Today, still, you go to a graveyard, persons are living on in the tombstones. Well, Spartans had only for those Spartans who died in war. And yes, that was more frequent than it would be today, but they weren't fighting battles every year. So it's not the case that lots of Spartans typically died in battle. They didn't. So you're saying women didn't have tombs? because they didn't die in battle? Yes, by definition not. There is one possible exception, and this is dependent on a reading of Plutarch's text in his Life of Lycurgus. Lycurgus said no tombstone, no named tombstones, except for men who die in battle. And then is it priestesses? That's one reading of the Greek. Or women who died in childbirth that's another possibility. I think probably priestesses was right. And your point about no tomb, no named tombstones for women is correct, which is in a way odd, because in other regards, the women in Sparta were better off than were women in, for example, Athens. They could own property in their own right. They had a certain amount of public standing. They didn't do any work, remember. Hellot women do the weaving how men do the grinding of the grain and so on whereas in uh, Athens you've got poor Athenian women who are doing the normal household tasks Wow,
1: so it sounds like the women had a pretty good life so what was the rough age expectancy for men and women in Sparta?
2: Well, this is one of those uh, imponderables because we don't have the necessary either written statistics or burial data, the the right number of graves which you can sex and age um, by osteological means. So it's all speculation. We have one or two figures for total number of Spartan adult male citizens and then people extrapolate from that. But... Um, More globally, in other words, cities that are, or states or cultures that are better attested than Sparta. People have done um, statistical, they're hypothetical statistics. And if I give you what's the sort of global picture, it's pretty shocking to our standards. But at birth, your average life expectancy in the fifth century BC, if you're a free um, Greek citizen, would be about 15. Now, why is it so low? Because at least two in three would be dead before their first birthday. So one in three, max, survives it Survives from naught to one. After one, things get a bit better, except until for males you come up to warfare and for females you come up to childbirth. So if you make it to 20... So you've gone through your teens, the zer and women have gone through their first childbirths. Your likelihood of average life expectancy is about fifty. If you make it to 50, then about 70, and then a tiny handful, you know, a few percent, are the exceptions that go on beyond 70, for example, Sophocles into his 90s. But it's pretty grim um, by our modern uh, life expectancy standards.
0: Would much of that come down to the quality of the food they were eating? Because there's all sorts of stories about how bad the food in Sparta was.
2: <laughs> well, the food in Sparta was thought to be bad because it was crude. Let's put it that way. A lot of pork and a lot of blood floating around. But on the other hand, Spartans were, because of the helots and because of the <laughs> environmental conditions of southern Peloponnese two riverine valleys the Avrotas, the Pamisos they were actually much much better off and they seemed to have eaten more of good food and women, girls and women as much as the men this is an unusual feature, they were fed as much as the boys the girls, Um, they would have been relatively healthier and relatively bigger there is evidence that Spartans were on average as it were, bigger than your average ancient Greek
1: very interesting wow yeah fascinating so it seemed like it would have been tough times there growing up did did many uh, young boys die during the training process I understand they started their training at seven years old and what was it like for a rough you know seven to ten year old boy during that time in Sparta
2: well, we have no detail beyond the age grading, so you're correct. Um, it's said to be seven, and then you carry on till you're 18. Then there's a, a liminal period between 18 and 20, and then at 20, you're fully adult. Girls had some sort of physical education unusually because typically Greek girls were kept in the home they weren't publicly educated or indeed displayed because you could be engaged in Athens at the age of five, so um, women were regarded very largely as um, producers of the next generation of uh, uh, Athenians say and then of household managers once they're married and they're married at puberty so 14, 15, 16 and then they would get pregnant pretty quickly typically and therefore they would be quite young. Spartan girls interestingly were said to marry later by which I infer that means something like 18 to 20 as opposed to 14 to 16. So by then they were more equal to their husbands who would be uh, in his probably late 20s maybe about 30. That's the typical age for men to get married. So there's a disparity but the disparity is less in Sparta than it would be in any other Greek city, for example, in Athens.
1: Fascinating. Look, we understand the legacy that the Athenians left behind. Did the Spartans leave anything behind that we, you know, can give them credit for today's day and age?
2: One thing they left behind is their name, um, Spartan, and secondly, Laconic comes from another name for them which was they were the lacones and so the adjective of lacones is laconicos and then helot is a word in the english in the english lexicon as meaning generically a, an unfree or very poorly very badly treated um, basic worker typically agricultural but more seriously the the myth of, uh, in particular, one battle, which was a defeat, but it's Sort of come down as a as a victory, namely Thermopylae in four eighty b c It's the same year as Salamis. It's just before the Athenian led Battle of Salamis Battle of Thermopylae. It's left a legacy which is on the one hand good and on the other hand, I think not so good. The good is bravery in a cause which is not just yours but it is in this case a whole people, the Greeks. And um, the Spartans are dying, not just for themselves, but for the Greek cause against Persian invasion and conquest. And it's often wrongly thought that all the Spartans at Thermopylae died. Actually, two of them didn't. And um, one of them was so um, ashamed that he'd survived, he committed suicide. The other one, the next year, the big battle, he in effect committed suicide because he rushed out in front of the uh, army and died, having killed uh, a number of Persians. But um, he died in what the Spartans considered an inappropriate way because you're not meant to to rush out uh, individually. You're meant to stay in your rank. But Thermopylae, though a defeat, enabled the Greeks to have the thought, well, maybe we could resist and that it's worth resisting. And Leonidas, who led that um, Greek resistance at Thermopylae, his name has gone down in legend. And the legend has taken, I think, a rather unfortunate um, direction in the 20th, 21st century. What he was supposed to have said in Greek to Xerxes, "Molone lave, come and get," meaning "come and get the weapons." When he was supposedly told by Xerxes, "Surrender, you're surrounded. You know, there's no point. Give up," and that he didn't. In the United States in particular, in the South in particular, are members of gun clubs, Mm, people who believe in the second... You know where I'm going. This is the gun lobby. They take this slogan to mean we must resist the national, the federal government, and we're like the Spartans resisting big bad Xerxes, telling us to give up our arms. In other words gun control or gun legislation and they also tend to be that sort of person sadly um, shall we say on the right Um, shall we say even supremacist there is a quite strong, right-wing, I I don't know if this is the case so much in Australia or in this country, who look to the Spartans as representing the sort of attitude that they think um, people in threatened positions, so whites in America, some of them feel threatened by blacks. And so it's great to take them out, you know, preemptively murder them at uh, the limit in the Spartan way so that's to me not a great legacy of the ancient Spartans uh, it's a divided legacy. Wow, well look mate. now
1: that we're on the topic with um, 300 Spartans and Thermopylae can you give us maybe I don't know, any intricate details on the battle that we may not find on the internet that you may have found in your research and <laughs> <in these> studies? <laughs> It's so I, understand uh, they had a, I understand they had a really good wit as well, these Spartans. Like there were some really amazing, funny sayings that came out,
0: probably of them. without knowing it. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> well, the Spartans had what I'd call gallows humour. And Leonidas is said to have said uh, on the morning of the third day, by which time they're confined to a very small space, um, most of the Greeks have actually melted away or run away because they know they're surrounded they 're going to be surrounded they're going to die. Well, the Spartans partly were there to die, so that wasn't a problem for them. The only <laughs> I said, "Look guys, eat, eat a hearty breakfast because tonight we're going to dine." in Hades. Now, Christians today think of heaven, paradise, as somehow up there. The the Greeks were, in my opinion, far more, um, if you like, realistic. Their bodies are buried in the ground, and Hades is down below. It's not up there. But in Hades, what do the bodies become? Well, there's a famous Book we call it of the um, Odyssey, where Odysseus wants desperately to meet again his mother, who's died while he's been away in Troy and on the way back. So he gets miraculously, um, this is the magical realism part of the Odyssey, um, permission and the ability to go down to Hades and see his um, uh, his mother again. He imagines she will be in something like human form. No. She's um like a bat is the best um analogy I can make because the corpses down there they squeak they don't speak, and um, in order to even make make them speak, they have to be given blood, um, blood for the ghosts is how it's put. So the point is this, that when Leonidas and his men are down in Hades, they're not going to be eating any breakfast ever again. So eat a hearty breakfast, because tonight we dine, joke, in Hades. Another one before the final um, Uh, defeat, is attributed to a man called Dainekes, and he appears in uh, Herodotus. Though Herodotus doesn't actually quote this particular bon mot, this um, uh, witticism, which is he's told, you know what, the Persians have so many archers on their side, when they loose their arrows all together, it blots out the sun. And um Deeniches, he isn't phased by this. He says, great, we'll fight him in the shade. <laughs> so that's there are two examples of Spartan witticism. They both happen to be Thermopylae, but there are a ton of others you know, in all sorts of um, contexts.
0: Well, in terms of the legacy of Thermopylae in particular, the classic thing that people say is that had certain things gone a different way you know, with the, with the Persian Wars, that we would potentially be speaking a different language of Western <laughs> civilization today. Is there any truth to, to something like that?
2: No, obviously, because um, it's an imponderable, and um, in terms of history, that sort of speculation is, could be endless, but there's no way of resolving the speculation. What is the case, I think, is that the Athenian miracle that I've described to you earlier, the Persians were particularly aiming to defeat and destroy. Athens. And they actually did destroy the centre of Athens, not once, but twice. 480 and then anything left still standing was destroyed in 479. Lots of smoking ruins. Imagine uh, um, a city in Ukraine today that we've seen on our TV screens. But... Because the Athenians survived and because the Athenians took the lead in the resistance thereafter, developing their empire and their culture, and because that culture was the one that was transmitted to Alexandria by way of Alexander the Great's conquest, and because Alexandria was then influential on Rome, that's why there is a direct chain of cultural transmission from the 5th century BC. Now, suppose that had been interrupted at the head of the chain. So Athens in the 5th century is a subordinate city of the Persian Empire, in other words, like Athens under the Ottoman Empire, with no chance of developing its own democracy, which is the ultimate basis of all that cultural flourishing, then yes, you can say um, the culture that we have inherited from the Athenians would have been different. Now, the main reason, I've already made this point, why we are the way we are, you and I and we we speak English and all that, is the Roman Empire. It's not what the Greeks did themselves. The Greeks conquered all the Roman sorry, the Romans conquered all the Greek world. And then transmitted Greek culture down through the Roman East, so Alexandria and Palmyra and all they're all in the Roman Empire, and they're all either Greek or Hellenized. well, I think
1: we sort of touched on it, so the Battle of Plataea, if the Greeks lost that battle. What would have happened? What would have been the outcome if they'd lost that battle at Plataea?
2: Well, that would have been that, yeah, that's the point, I think. That was the decisive battle in 479 on land. So that would have meant the end of the Greek resistance. It wasn't um, the, the Greeks won at Plataea, but that wasn't quite the end of the Persian Wars because the Greeks still had to defeat in Asia the Persians, which they did at the Battle of Mikali, which is near Samos today. So, um, yes, that would have been um, curtains. And I often have to fight against my more Athenocentric colleagues who say, no, no, Salamis was the key battle of the Persian Wars. And Herodotus agreed. Herodotus, who was not, of course, an Athenian, he came from Halicarnassus, but he took the Athenian line. Whereas I say, no, um, Patea was the decisive, finally decisive. Of course, Patea couldn't have been fought had Salamis not been won already, but that's another issue.
0: Let's just talk Alexander the Great for a brief moment, just to wrap everything up. In simplest terms, was Alexander the Great Greek?
2: To me, there's no argument about that. The only possible non-argument, in other words, going the other way, is the Macedonian language, which they spoke amongst themselves, which was not immediately comprehensible to speakers of other dialects of greek but it was undoubtedly a dialect of greek and every single public inscription when the macedonians started writing epitaphs and laws in public in permanent form they're always done in greek perfectly good greek based on athenian greek so it's, there's no doubt about that in terms of their public uh, persona um in terms of their myth Macedon, who is remember we talked about, um, there are ancestors of all the different types of Greeks. They have a name, and so that's where the name comes from. Well, Macedon is the original Macedonian. He's right up there in the Hesiodic genealogy of all Greeks, right up there. You know, in this sort of second or third generation um, as a Greek. So, to me, there's absolutely no question. There's a, a cultural snobbishness. From Athens, which suggests that because Maston only ever had kings they didn't evolve politically into republicanism of any sort let alone democracy of the Athenian sort they themselves didn't produce Macedonian poets and um, playwrights and doctors you know all that they're culturally backward by southern Greek standards all sorts of myths have grown up about Greek Macedonians not being Greek
0: Well, we can debunk that one Nick Fantastic, tick. Alexander the Great. Well, (laughs) Paul, uh, obviously you've got you've got to go, which is uh, it's, it's bad for us because we've learnt so much out of this discussion, and thank you so much for being here. There's so much more that we can talk about. We hope that you'll come back at some stage and uh, and join us again to to go even deeper on some subjects.
2: Absolutely. You just send me an invite and I'll pitch up, and it would be a real pleasure. It's been lovely seeing you, talking to you, and uh, I hope there's been a bit of enlightenment. I certainly have learned uh, a great absolutely. deal. So
1: thanks very much. Uh, definitely. Look, I could listen to you all day. Like, I'm mesmerized <laughs> just, yeah listening to you talk (laughs) too kind thank you so much this has been so fascinating for me personally and Tom as well because we've had so many discussions on ancient Greece but to talk to an expert like yourself and to absolutely debunk some of those myths that we've been discussing but look it's been a pleasure to have you on board and we look we'd love to hear from you again so we'll definitely reach out to you at some point
2: thanks very much Nick thanks Tom a real honour Oozotalk
0: is the email. Make sure you're sending us your messages. We love hearing your questions and hearing your feedback. Follow us on social media at Uzo talk and at Uzo underscore talk on Instagram. Νίκα thank you very much, mate.
1: Tom, you're a legend. And Paul, you're the biggest legend on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> thank
2: you. Thank you, guys. Yeah, σας. Καληνύχτα.
1: Yeah, yeah. Spotify, Apple Podcasts,